Freedom is just another word for everything else to lose. Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the Sunday Sermon of July 5th, 2020 from Christ Church, Jerusalem. On the fifth Sunday after Pentecost, Rev. David Pelegi points out a tension within Jesus' message. Jesus offers rest to those who are weary, but he ties this promise to the condition that we take his yoke upon us and learn from him. It would seem that if you needed rest, you would want freedom from problems and from the grind of daily life. However, freedom, as understood in our times, brings not well-being but rather loss. David examines the biblical and Jewish context of Jesus' promise and considers why it is easier to be a disciple of Jesus than to be a disciple of this world. While following Jesus has many challenges, the rewards far outweigh all that the world can offer. We turn now to the reading and teaching of God's Word. The first scripture reading is from Exodus 33, verses 12 through 23. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, If I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, and that I may find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here, for how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, Please show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. Our gospel portion is from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 11 starting at 16 to 19, and then beginning at 25. We will honor an ancient tradition. Please stand as we hear the teaching and the instruction and the good news of Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to the companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. 
we mourned to you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a wine-biber, friend, tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's begin by praying. So, Father in heaven, we, we do come to you. And Lord, it is our desire, or the desire of most of us, to come into a place of deeper knowledge and deeper experience with you as we live the life of your Son and live the life that your Son has commanded us to live. And we ask that as we imitate him, as we learn from him, as we study his life and his words, we do pray that we will know you, the Father, the King of the universe, in a better and more intimate way. We will know your love and your affirmation, your encouragement, and indeed, your challenge as well. We ask all these things for the sake of Jesus and for the advancement of his kingdom. Amen. We have a, a gospel passage that uh, is incredibly beautiful. I have a lot of echo and uh, feedback. I feel, I told the morning, people, congregation in the morning, I always wanted to be a rock star. Now, if just the roadies would come up and tune my guitar, <clears throat> I would feel like I'm playing the part. But we have a beautiful, gospel passage uh, in front of us, and the gospel passage that we have is so perhaps important and significant that there once was a commentator year, years ago who proposed the following. He said the entire gospel of Matthew is a commentary on these, on five verses in chapter 11. from 11.25 to 11.30. And while that may not be totally true, there is something that uh, 
is very, um, that rings true about what he has to say. And our problem or our challenge is when we come to verses like this, especially as believers, is that this language can be so beautiful. It can sometimes be so inspiring. And yet, maybe we've heard these verses many times in the past, and they tend to go in one ear, usually drop down to our heart, metaphorically speaking, make us feel warm and glad all over, and go out the other ear. And we're not quite sure what they, what they mean, but they sound good. Yes, they sound encouraging. They sometimes sound challenging. And so when we come to the Gospels and when we come to language that we're familiar with, it's going to help us to, to try to understand what is actually being said in the text. I think the other um, challenge that we have in these passages, very simply, well, there are two or three, right? One, the passage that was, uh, the passage in Matthew about the revelation of the, the son uh, reveals the father, and then of course the famous words, come to me all you who are weary and burdened. These words actually don't fit in any context. And it's as if the editor of this gospel had this really cool saying, really significant saying, and had to find a place to put it in. That's what editors actually do, uh, whether it's modern literature or ancient literature. So Matthew puts it here. But what comes before and what comes after doesn't seem to connect and doesn't seem to make sense. Although there is, a, there is a Jewish context, first century Jewish context of this, and there is a biblical context uh, as well. Even more challenging, this passage is not repeated in, any, uh, in the other synoptic gospels. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're called synoptic gospels because they overlap and often tell the same story with some differences. So we can't turn to Matthew, sorry, we can't turn to Luke or we can't turn to Mark, yes, and get more clarity on this. And finally, you might say that there's a, an intellectual challenge or even a spiritual challenge because when we, especially as moderns, when we read these words, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest, take my yoke upon me and learn from me, we have to th say, wait a minute. If I'm weary and I'm uh, burdened, why do I want to take a yoke upon me? Why do I want, somehow want to imprison myself or restrict myself? This doesn't seem to make sense. So let's look at uh, some of the, the key, maybe, words in this, uh, in this passage. And I think the first word uh, to consider is the word yoke. And here this has a first century Jewish context. This first century uh, Jewish context, or perhaps even uh, maybe even a hundred years before, yoke becomes a metaphor. And this metaphor is used uh, as a way of talking about obedience, or it's used to talk about uh, subservience. 
And it's always used in connection with the Torah. Yes, there's the yoke of the Torah. The Torah, of course, is God's guidance, God's direction, God's instruction. And if we call it the law, eh, we're not giving it its best and fullest translation. So there's the yoke of the Torah. Then there's the yoke of the commandments, similar. Rabbi Gamliel talked about the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. Um, and there's even a, uh, a midrash or an understanding, a play on words in ancient Hebrew when people read the word uh, Beliel, which is the word for Satan. They could read it in such a way by changing the vowels or dropping the vowels, dropping out the vowels, that they could call Satan Bliol, someone who has no yoke, someone who has no restraint. So when Jesus says, take my yoke, it's language that people sure, clearly understood, uh, clearly understood in the first century. And uh, we'll come back to that. And then we have rest. And in the passage that we read from Exodus, I, th I think one of the most beautiful passages in the Hebrew Bible, we have uh, this, of course, I think most of you remember the scene the scene is uh, Moses goes up the mountain. The people of Israel start to worship the golden calf. God says, I'm tired of these people. I'm going to get rid of them. And Moses begins an argument with God. And Moses, God says, they're your people. And Moses keeps telling God, no, they're your people. And Moses finally says, God, for the sake of your reputation, for the sake of the promises that you made, have mercy on these people. And that's where we pick up, that's where we pick up the story. It says, Moses, and I'm reading from chapter 33, Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and I have, and you have found favor with me. And if you, if you are pleased with me, Teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember, this nation is your people. So Moses is saying, I really need help. Yes, I need you to, uh, I need your presence. I need you to be with me. You know, Moses was probably saying, I'm still learning on the job. You know, teach me. So there's an amazing uh, appeal by Moses. He's asking God, to be his teacher. And here's what the Lord replies to him. It says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. What, what kind of rest? Yes. Remember the um, passage in Psalm 95 and in all Anglican worship, uh, morning worship, at least. We always read Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 says the following. It says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test. This was a rebellion by the people of Israel uh, against, against God. He said, they are a people who go astray in their heart 
even though they had seen my mighty, miraculous works. Therefore, I swore, okay, they shall not enter my rest. Yes, they shall not go into God's rest. And yet here God says to Moses, I will give you rest. And the rest is interesting. The teaching, the rest, it's in the, it's in the context of revelation. It's in the context of God revealing himself to Moses so that Moses could know the Lord. And for those of you who may not be familiar, especially when we read in the Bible, to know the Lord, which is a phrase that we use many times in our community. You know, sometimes we buttonhole people saying, you know the Lord? Uh, what does that mean? All through the Old Testament, all through the Hebrew Bible, to know the Lord means really to have experienced the Lord. You had to first have firsthand experience, yeah, a firsthand encounter with God himself. If you say, do you know the Lord? It's easy for us to say, yeah, I studied some theology. I know a little philosophy. I can argue, you know, uh, the, I can argue that, you know, for deism or whatever it may be. But this is not something abstract. It's not something intellectual. Yes. In this context of revelation, do you know the Lord? And then in the passage, Jesus says, learn from me. And this is a very rich, again, a very rich Old Testament, a very rich uh, tradition in the Hebrew Bible. Because especially when we encounter uh, this concept or understanding in uh, the book of Deuteronomy, which was one of, of uh, Jesus' favorite books, maybe after Isaiah, uh, he quotes from Deuteronomy more than uh, any other book of the Hebrew Bible, and that might be true for the entire New Testament as well. When we, when we encounter the concept of learning, this concept of learning, uh, again, is not something abstract. It's not something intellectual. Learning will always, always lead to obedience. Obedience will always lead to life. It will lead to blessing. Yes, it will lead to a, a certain contentment uh, and a certain, a certain peace. I'm going to give you uh, one or two, um, you know, one or two examples. So from um, Deuteronomy 31, um, it goes on to talk about the king and uh, the, the uh, uh, no, sorry, that's in 17, so I'll come to that. Um, I'll come, that, come to that in a minute. But it's here it talks about uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this Torah. You shall read these, this guidance and instruction and direction for the people, okay? And so that you can listen and learn. Learn to do what? Learn to reverence the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of this law. Okay? So here, learning, yes, leads to something very practical. It changes, uh, it changes behavior. And then um, I like 17 because it's one of my, uh, 
my favorites. Um, it's about the king. And uh, it says in chapter 17, a king, yeah, the ruler of the nation, uh, must not acquire for himself a lot of possessions, horses and gold and money and wives, etc., etc. Very few leaders in history have ever actually taken this to heart, uh, unfortunately. And um, in this, by the way, in this context, I don't know if you, um, if you know the story, but uh, there was a Jewish legend that uh, develops around the time of Jesus. And this Jewish legend talks about King Solomon. And King Solomon, he read these verses, yes, and he didn't like what he read. So he decided to change God's eternal word. And how did he change God's word? He took one letter out of the verse. Now, what letter did he take out? The Yud. Yes, the Yud's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's very, it can be easily left off, or you can easily not see it. But he changed the verse so, so it would say, the king shall have lots of women and lots of horses and lots of gold and lots of possessions. And we all know what happened to Solomon. And by the way, in the legend, the Yud flies up to heaven and appears before the Lord, the king of kings, and the little letter says, God, the king of the universe, look what Solomon has done to your Torah. And what does the Lord say? Go back down and put yourself back in the verse because Solomon and a million people like him will never change the Torah, will never change my word. Now, does that sound familiar to us? Quote me a saying of Jesus. Yes, I have not come to destroy the law. Yes, but to fulfill it. Not one letter, one, not one yud, yes, or tittle or crown, yes, on the letters will pass away. Yes. And so here the king, uh, in order to, to be straight, in order to be honest, uh, he is uh, supposed to... Um, uh, to do the following in verse 17. It says, when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from the priests who are Levites. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law. That's the context of learning. And by the way, those of you who uh, are familiar with um, uh, Jewish practice today or Jewish religious thought today can understand why Jewish people came to place a high value on the study of the scripture and its commentaries. In fact, there was a very uh, famous American Jewish rabbi, a theologian, and uh, he once made a comment about uh, the ancient world, which is still somewhat true today and applies to what we're saying uh, here and now. And this was Abraham Joshua Heschel, who was a good friend of Martin Luther King's, and he used to march with Martin Luther King in many of these civil rights marches. And when he was walking with Dr. King, uh, uh, Heschel used to say, my feet are praying. But he said this about the ancient world. He said, the Greeks study in order to know, 
yes, but ancient Jews studied in order to revere, in order to serve. That was the purpose of study. Now, if we take these, these concepts and we look at our verse, especially the, especially the uh, verse 28 and following, here we, we have the following. Come to me. And of course, here Jesus <clears throat> issues an invitation. He's inviting us. Yes, come to me. This is an open-ended invitation. It, re- it does in some ways. Uh, surely it does remind us of what we read a few weeks ago in verse 9 when um, Jesus says, he, when the, the text tells us that he went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Yes. So again, we get this Jesus, this empathy, yes, with the human condition. Okay. So Jesus issues this uh, invitation. He inv- an invitation to, certainly to all of us, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Beautiful. But weary and burdened about what? Doesn't say. And perhaps that's the beauty of it. Yes, it's open-ended. We could be weary with, with life. We could be weary with doing good. We could be weary in our discipleship. Yes. But Jesus invites us, yes, in order to come and to receive rest and to receive, uh, receive refreshment. And then we read, yes, he says, I will give you rest. And what, is, what does rest really mean here? Especially we think of uh, Psalm 95 or Exodus 33 or even Hebrews uh, Hebrews chapter four, uh, rest in this sense isn't uh, uh, going to Miami Beach and uh, sitting by the pool, yes, and uh, drinking uh, Singapore slings for the rest of your life, taking it easy, maybe on the golf course, uh, spending uh, your days with your grandchildren. It's not the biblical understanding of rest. The biblical understanding of rest is coming to a place, yes, of blessing, coming to a place of peace, a place where we can, uh, we have a certain assurance and we can trust God, yes, for our future. And it's coming uh, to a place of contentment. This is, the, uh, this is the biblical idea of rest. And Jesus is saying to those who are worn out and to those who are weary, try me. Yes, come to me. Yes, and I will give you rest. Now, it's not something just automatic. Hey, come to Jesus, I'll plug in and he'll recharge me. He'll refuel me. It goes on because it's conditional. Beautiful promise, but a promise that has a condition. And the condition is, take my yoke upon you. Yes, and learn from me. Now, wait a minute. Wait. We all want to be free. We want to be free from entanglements. We want to be free from burdens. Most of us, unless we have something is seriously uh, 
psychologically wrong. We want to be uh, free from, uh, uh, from having difficult life or have, for having any kind of, uh, from any kind of suffering. And the generation in which we live, in which I don't want to belabor this, yes, is a generation in which the ultimate goal of most people on the planet, as we speak, the ultimate goal is probably some kind of human flourishing. And that human flourishing comes by, uh, through self-expression, it uh, comes by being authentic, it comes by throwing off every kind of restraint uh, that might s somehow squash us or somehow oppress us or somehow traumatize us. Anything that keeps us from being our authentic selves, yes, has to be done away with. That's the society in which we live. That is the spirit of the age. Yes, it is a very, very um, strong form of uh, secular humanism. So we all want to be free. Why do we want to take a yoke upon us? And freedom is well defined. I'll, I'll say this for, for Yohanan, who, who will understand. Freedom is, you know, for our, at least my generation, when I grew up, freedom is, uh, for many people, is summed up in the words of the Janis Joplin song. Yes, freedom is just another word for nothing else to lose. Yes, actually Janice didn't write it. Chris Christopherson wrote it, but Janice lived it. <coughs> yeah. She died at 27, if you remember, from an overdose. And so we think, this is difficult. This doesn't make sense. But let me ask you a question, or several questions. Yeah. Which is easier? Which actually brings about human flourishing? Yes, to live a life of anxiety and worry and fear or to live a life of trust. Yeah, trust in God. Having the ability to put our future in God's hands. What's, uh, what's more difficult? Or what actually leads to human flourishing? real human flourishing as God intended, not as the secular world understands it. Yes, to live in reconciliation with people or to nurse grudges and hatred <coughs> and bitterness for a lifetime. What's easier or what, what leads to human flourishing or to, to, to the best of human flourishing? Yes, to be generous and know that there's a good heavenly father who watches over us or to be obsessed with somehow hoarding and holding, you know, our wealth. What's easier? To trust that um, in the resurrection and life after death and to have an assurance that the things that we do in this life and in this world count 
for an eternity or to spend a lifetime running away from death, being afraid of death. In fact, the way that most of us handle the fear of death, death is we just keep busy. We keep moving. We keep rolling. We don't want to think about it. We keep uh, accomplishing and keep achieving. Yet with the understanding that most of what we do will have no significance after we go to the grave. At the end of the day, it's easier to be a disciple of Jesus and to obey his commandments and to live the way that he asks us to live than not to be a disciple of Jesus. And so that yoke, yes, which Jesus asks us to carry, and it is challenging. There's no doubt about it. You know, Jesus, some people would think Jesus is all about freedom and grace, et cetera, et cetera. No, Jesus, Jesus commands us, yes, to live in a certain way. And it's interesting, Jesus in Matthew's gospel is a teacher. And at the end of the gospel, what does he require his disciples to do? Go and teach the nations all that I have commanded you. Pretty much sums up the gospel as well. Go and teach the nations all that I have commanded you. And we have, um, again, there's a rebellion. And there's something in us that uh, resists this. We might, uh, re- we might uh, re-paraphrase uh, the Janis Joplin song and say, for those who insist on living for themselves and living by their own standards and not the standards of Jesus, you might say that uh, freedom is just another word for everything to lose. Yes, because at the end and at the grave, yes, all of those things, yes, that uh, all of that uh, self-expression All of that authenticity counts for nothing. And so we have uh, Jesus saying, I've come to give you rest. Obey me and I will give you rest. How do we obey Jesus? He says, learn from me. We don't just all of a sudden take, we don't have a bunch of rules in a book and, you know, I'm going to love my neighbor, I'm going to be generous, I'm going to refrain from committing adultery. When people have that kind of approach, unfortunately, it's the commandments, yes, or the directions or the instructions, whatever they may be, be, become an end in themselves. Jesus isn't giving us these commandments to be an end in themselves. He's being, he gives us this, these commandments so that we can be holy. Yes, and holiness gets a bad rap, unfortunately. But I would challenge anyone to study holiness and to study God's holiness. And as we begin to study it, you know, especially in, its, uh, in a biblical understanding, it becomes very powerful and very attractive. And of course, to be holy means not to be some religious goody two-shoes, but it means to be whole, to be complete, 
to become to come to a place of maturity. And in that, we come to a place of intimacy with God himself. But how do we do it? Again, people think, all right, I'm going to you know, go through life, and when my neighbor offends me, I'm going to forgive them. But of course, that's not so easy. Or I'm going to be generous. Or I'm going to really love that person that I can't stand. But Jesus says, learn from me. What does it mean to learn from him? It only means we study his life. It means we read about him. It not only means we read a book on reconciliation, how are we going to reconcile, help Palestinians and, and Israelis be, you know, come together in peace. Or, or books about forgiveness. It means that we have to practice forgiveness or that we have to actually practice reconciliation. And it doesn't come automatically. It comes out of a life. It comes out of a life of learning. And we imitate Jesus, not only doing these things, but we imitate Jesus because he is nourished by the scripture. And we ourselves should be nourished by, nourished by the scripture. We imitate Jesus because he spends time in solitude. Yes, he spends time in listening prayer, listening to his father. He spends time in relationships with others. He spends time learning. He spends time, yes, being in the presence of the Lord. And it says we do these things. Yes, we do these things. Then we're learning of him or learning from him. That enables us to carry that yoke, which is challenging and not always easy. But again, it's easier than the alternative. It's better than the alternative. It brings significance to our lives. It gives us, it brings us to a place of rest. Again, not that we're trouble-free or we don't suffer, but it brings us to that place of contentment. It brings us to that place of peace. It brings us into a place of blessing. Yes, that was God's intention for us from the beginning. And this happens, yes, God works this through the life of Jesus. So being a disciple, as I said, is challenging. It does include picking up a cross and following Jesus, but it also includes at the same time many rewards. And brothers and sisters, I will guarantee you, and I think most people who have been following the Lord, most people who have been students of Jesus, apprentices of Jesus, most people who have been sitting at his feet for a long time will assure all of us, yes, that the rewards outweigh, yes, the benefits outweigh any sacrifices that we will make. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you will give us rest. We pray that uh, you'll teach us to learn from you, to be taught by you, to submit ourselves to you, to take up your yoke, yes, to be obedient, and to know your blessings, and to know a life of good. We pray that um, 
we will be able to um, extend that same peace to others, the peace that you've given us, the rest that you've given us. And we pray that indeed that you will um, not only bless us, but bless those around us. And we ask this again, yes, for the mighty sake of Jesus, uh, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening. Our sermons and Bible studies are on all your favorite podcasting platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. Sermons can also be found on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook for alerts on live streams. If you are blessed by these teachings, please prayerfully consider giving toward the work of Christchurch. Visit ChristchurchJerusalem.org. Blessings from the City of the Great King.